Welcome back to Pod is a Woman, an honest, unfiltered conversation about the current state of politics and pop culture from three veterans of the Obama White House, who also happen to be friends. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. And this week, we're joined by Daniela Gibbs-Legere, Executive Vice President of Communications and Strategy for the Center for American Progress and our former colleague from the White House. But first, House lawmakers have now delivered the articles of impeachment to the Senate, and the impeachment trial is slated to begin the week of February 8th. But we're already hearing members of Congress backing away from calling for accountability. Ladies, does this surprise you? I don't know what it means for our country if people of a party refuse to hold the leader of their party accountable for his actions. And to be clear, it's only going to take, what, 17 senators from the Republican side to cross over and decide that they're going to bring some sort of justice to the American people with regard to this insurrection. And unfortunately, I'm not sure that we're going to get there. This is the bravery part that we've been talking about for so long. We want to see people put their country above their political aspirations, above their party, and to just watch people slowly back away from how strong their statements were a couple weeks ago, and then to just use this kind of false call for unity, which is another way of saying, let's just wipe away accountability and pretend like it didn't happen under that guise, is so transparent, right? It really is. It's so performative. I mean, to say, oh, I'm appalled and I'm shocked and I can't believe that this sort of violence could happen in this historic building and upon our nation's capital and then turn around and not do anything to hold former President Trump. It's it's nice to say former President Trump, not going to lie, but <laughs> to not hold him accountable for inciting this sort of violence. How can you not do that? The, the thing that I'm most proud about in America is that we do not have a ruler, a monarch, who is just entitled to these positions and that you have to be deserving and that there is always a check and balance on that power. And I believe that if, you know, like as a Democrat, if there are people who are making me embarrassed, who to be a Democrat. I want to hold them accountable. And so for me, it's just kind of watching this ex-president now go out, talk about creating a new Patriot Party, talk about, you know, how he's going to uh, continue to make America great. Like, no one person, no one person will ever be able to do that for you. And I hope that Republicans find their bravery to hold this leader accountable for calling all of us socialists when we are not, for saying the most heinous things about people who are trying to come to America and live the American dream, and throughout his tenure, sowing division. Well, it's been very interesting to watch as our new administration starts getting their feet wet and, and uncovering just the extent to which the American people weren't told the truth or weren't given the full information. We just saw this past week that the CDC director under Biden was saying that the federal government doesn't know how much COVID vaccine the U.S. has. That's something we obviously we weren't aware of. But now that they're kind of kicking the tires and looking under the hood, we're starting to realize just the extent to which we were kept in the dark. And so much about that, not just kept in the dark about the vaccines, but the sorts of needles that need to be used, the increased sort of precautions that need to be taken. Why are we just starting to see some of this roll out now? 
Why wasn't it rolled out during the Trump administration? Well, and look, the global pandemic that we find ourselves in is not going to be easy to get out of because now it will have been a year that we are all going through this. And so, you know, I think that uh, this administration is going to do so much more than just apply pressure on the vaccine. They're going to actually use science. Um, And I think you saw Dr. Fauci, you know, say, yes, we want science at the forefront of our conversation, testing, tracing, reopening schools safely. This is what we have to get back to. We have a lot to talk about with Daniela Gibbs-Legere today, so we're going to save a lot of time for that. But we do have two new residents to the White House as of this week, and that's Major and Champ Biden, the two official White House dogs. We have White House dogs, and it's so exciting. One of my favorite people when we were at the White House was Dale Haney, and he has now been at the White House as a groundskeeper for over 50 years. And one of the things that he was charged with was actually taking care of the presidential pets. And so he took care of Bo and Sonny. He took care of both Bush's um, pets. And to see him walk with Champ and Major Um, on the South Lawn and into the White House with the First Lady was so touching and sweet. Oh, I love presidential pets because I love pets. (laughs) My dad always had dogs and I am definitely a cat lady. It's also, you know, uh, a first as far as White House pets because Major is the first shelter dog to be in a White House, which, you know, it's it's a nice moment that was celebrated by a lot of shelters around the country. They were having their own, I think they called it, Pop, what was it called? In inauguration, <laughs> but you know they also have a cat. You guys, we have to give the cat some credit. It's like I, I was. Everybody knew I was like part of the cat crew. <laughs> like Pete Rouse literally was a cat guy, and then Aaron was a cat guy. We had like a cat brigade, and there's going to be a cat in this White House. I'm very excited about that. Well, we're thankful for these moments of levity because there is a lot on the Biden administration's plate, and he has already started tackling issue after issue on his first day with several executive orders and actions. We have Daniela Gibbs-Legere here with us today to help us start understanding what's been done and what we are still expecting to be done in these next 100 days. So let's go right to her. Today, we're joined by Daniela Gibbs-Legere, Executive Vice President of Communications and Strategy for the Center for American Progress. Thanks for joining us, Daniela. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we just want to kick things off. And one of the things that I want to ask you now that we have this new administration in, given everything that has taken place over the past four years, what does progress look like for the American people? (laughs) That is a, it's a great question. It's a, it's a big question. And, and honestly, it, can, it runs the gamut from little things like having daily press briefings where people can actually get information out of the current administration in a timely and expected manner to, you know, hearing from the coronavirus task force about how they're planning on getting the pandemic under control and how they're planning to step up vaccine distribution. Because we all know and understand that we're not going to be able to get back to whatever the new normal is until we get this pandemic under control. So to me, progress is transparency, having competent adults running government again, and actually having a plan that we can look forward to and and see its implementation happening. 
to your point about having a plan, there have been so many executive orders and actions that have been taken over the last week, many of them on President Biden's first day in office. Can you talk us through what you see as being the most significant? Yeah, he has done more, I believe, on his first day in terms of executive orders than any other uh, recent president or any president. Uh, And with good reason, there was a lot to overturn that the Trump administration did, especially a lot of things that they did sort of on the way out the door. Um, So, you know, there are are things that are maybe a little bit more symbolic, uh, but then there are things that have real life consequences, you know, like reversing the ban on trans Americans serving in the military. Like that is that is a huge thing. Uh, as as you well know, um, the, the military was was against putting this policy into place in the first place. Uh, so for him to make that one of the first things uh, that he did uh, in the new Secretary of Defense, uh, I think was really important. Uh, just recently, uh, he signed some executive orders talking about, you know, racial equity. And to have a president talk about, like verbally say that white supremacy and structural racism is a problem. And then like, right, sign some executive orders to talk about how they're going to dismantle some of these things. I, I really can't express like how incredible that is to see, especially in contrast with the last four years. That was actually going to be my next question, because you're in Washington. The three of us have since left. We're in Chicago and Los Angeles, but you're there. What is the mood? You know, are people feeling that Biden's meeting his promise? It seems like in the first week he really came out swinging. Yeah, you know, I think people are are optimistic, right? We still understand that this is a closely divided government. And so there's going to be, you know, obstruction, there are going to be obstacles. But to see him willing to use the power of his pen to move things across immediately, uh, there is, um, there's like a lightness among the progressives in this town. <laughs> uh, like, I wouldn't say it's jovial because we're still in the middle of a pandemic and working from home. Uh, but there's definitely a sense of optimism that perhaps that light that we see at the end of the tunnel isn't an oncoming train. It actually is a light that we're headed towards. Well, and Danielle, I know we were so excited to talk because uh, we all worked together in the Obama White House at the very beginning. Um, And we saw, you know, we worked for a president who really talked about our shared values, you know, like we are only as um, healthy as the least among us. We are only as educated as the least among us. And he really tried to bring people together. But we saw the Republican Party um, in Washington just straight out say that they weren't going to work with President Obama on anything. Do you see any opportunity for this Congress functioning better or differently than we have before so that we can make progress for the American people? Because I think that's why we're seeing so many executive orders, right? Because nothing is actually passing in Congress. Right. There's, there is a sliver of me that holds on to optimism, right? Like my child holds on to the the idea that maybe I'll let him have like a lollipop when he comes home <laughs> from daycare. And I like, you know, Mitch McConnell, Joe Biden go way back. They have like this relationship that is different than how McConnell and Obama, their relationship was. And so maybe there might be a few things. I'll be honest, that sliver gets smaller every second. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, do I, do I think there's a chance for some 
grand bipartisan bills coming down? Maybe. I mean, maybe we'll actually have an infrastructure week that does infrastructure because that actually is something that Democrats and Republicans claim to want. But I just feel like the well has been so poisoned by the by Mitch McConnell and the Republicans, and they've sort of laid out this precedent of presidents now having to work around them. That I, you know, I, I think they really are going to have to be creative about, like I said, using the power of the executive and you know looking to states and and seeing how they can have real impact that doesn't always have to go through Congress or, you know, looking at changing some rules in Congress to get stuff done. Well, and that's that is the question, right? Like, could they change rules? Like, what is an indicator that progress could be made? What what could we pay attention to there? Well, you know, I think the the back and forth that no real person cares about, about how the Senate organized itself uh, and their power sharing. Mm -hmm. But I think that was a window into what might happen. You saw both Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer sort of claiming credit or claiming victory for for, uh, avoiding a filibuster. But honestly, I think Chuck Schumer walked away with the win there because he never said that he wasn't necessarily going to try and kill the filibuster if Republicans consistently stop everything that they try to do. So I think we'll see what happens with the COVID relief package, whether they try and break it up into smaller pieces or they try to you know, move the entire thing. Like the American people need relief. Yeah. You know, I see what's happening in other countries and the way their social structures are set up so that people who've been out of work for months aren't worried about losing their homes. <laughs> and that's about to start happening here. And I think if Mitch McConnell is standing in the way of real relief going to the American people, I think you're going to see Chuck Schumer and Democrats think about what their options are. And that includes everything, including getting rid of the filibuster. You're so right. We're we're all paying attention to things that I remember, like all of us at the beginning of the Obama White House were trying to get press to pay attention to. And so when President Trump was elected, I was like, well, you know, at least now Americans are paying attention to this. How do you think the Biden's communications team and, you know, the Biden administration uh, will defer and have to navigate this administration with the press um, differently than the Trump administration did. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the Trump administration just like blew up all the norms about how the <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> really. administration deals with the press. And for me, it's like y'all, meaning the media, it's like y'all let the bar drop so low mm-hmm. that you can't then come in to the Biden administration and like expect them to be, I don't know, to jump over hoops to like satisfy you guys. Like to me, like that, yeah. that's just not fair. I mean, I think the way that Jen has handled herself, Jen Psaki in the press briefings has been great because she's just, she's there. She's honest. She's forthright. She doesn't know an answer. She says so. And she mm-hmm. says, we'll get back to you like the way normal people do. Um, <laughs> you know, but I, I do hope, and I know there are going to be plenty of us on the outside who will remind the media of this, but I do hope that if they start going back to this, 
this weird place where there's a double standard in the way the media treats them versus the way the media allowed themselves to be treated under the Trump administration, that there's a little bit of pushback. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, no, we're not going to do that. Because for four years, you let these people come up to this podium and lie and do all of these things. And so, no, we're not going to have like this stupid back and forth about the Florida getting the Olympics or, or whatever that dumb question was that Steve Ducey asked. Him. <laughs> I heard whatever, it. I what, heard it too. Peter, Peter. <laughs> whatever Ducey it's, that it's, was. It's, I know. I said <laughs> next time he needs to be like, I think you know a little bit about nepotism. God bless. <laughs> but it's so hard as they are working to rebuild a relationship with the press. They're also working to rebuild and truly build out a relationship with the American people. And when we're trying to communicate and convey trust to the American people, how does the Biden communications team and the administration as a whole, how do they do that? Yeah, I think they by doing what they're doing now, they have to be out there. I think just constantly, like the dearth of information that we were getting um, over the last, you know, several years, it's, it's so, it's so stark. And it really like everything about the Trump administration boggles my mind, but it like really boggled my mind that we're in the middle of this incredible global pandemic. And at the time when like more Americans were dying every day than ever before, not a word from the coronavirus task force, like that's absurd. And so, you know, to have like, you know, the task force now hold open briefings and take questions and have Dr. Fauci be at the, uh, you know, the press secretary's briefings. I think that they just have to keep communicating. It may feel like over-communication to some people, but like it's so vitally important that the American people hear directly from the administration about like what you're doing, right? It's like, tell them what you're going to do, tell them how you do it, tell them when you're doing it, and then tell them what you did, like over and over and over again. Um, and, you know, when you don't know the answer to something, like be honest about it, uh, and don't lie. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. always a good, a good baseline is not to lie. Well, and you bring up such a good point in terms of standards, because, you know, when we were at the White House, you had to address the press and have the press in the room. And at the end of the Trump administration, I was getting so frustrated by all of those released videos. You know, he was just releasing information directly to the American people that was not true. And so that is like the question, you know, now if the Biden team is releasing things directly to the American people, how can we get people to understand that they are actually trying to get the truth out? Is it by going through the press or do they need to use these different forms of communications like releasing videos? I think they have to do both, right? Like, I think one thing we saw during the campaign, I, I think the, the Biden team did a really good job of, of using social media and using and talking directly to people. But like, you have to go through the media. I, I think you, you have to show that you're not, I mean, the Trump administration was hiding, basically. So you have to show that you're not hiding from people. 
um, that you're willing to take their questions, that you're willing to engage in a back and forth. And so then when you do release your own videos that you that your in-house team makes, people aren't questioning, well, is this true? Is this just spin? It's like, well, no, because it mirrors exactly what they said when they were asked these questions by the media. And like, we know that there's a way, a direct way to like basically get to folks through the media. So I, I think you have to you have to be able to do everything, do all of it, because not everybody is watching the daily press briefings like we all are. Uh, so you have to be able to reach people where they are. But I, I do think it's important to to like reestablish that relationship with the media so people don't see everything that you're doing with suspicion. switch gears for a second to immigration because President Biden unveiled an immigration bill on his first day of office, and it's been very well received by advocates who has a path to citizenship. I know he sat down with a uh, table of Latino leaders even before inauguration about it. Immigration policy is a focus for the Center for American Progress. How optimistic are you on immigration reform? You know, I I am cautiously optimistic. Uh, you know, obviously there are going to be hurdles, I think, in the Senate, uh, as there will be for lots of legislation that Democrats care about. But I mean, immigration is is always, it's one of those things that when I think back to the Obama administration, how I would get so angry at John Boehner for not, for never bringing the bill to the floor, because um, it would have passed but he was scared of his caucus. Uh, so now that Democrats have control of the House, and again, there's a slim majority in the Senate, I, I think there is, I have cautious optimism, and I think my team does too, uh, that this can get done. And like with polling shows that like, the components of this bill are popular with the American people. So, you know, I, I think it can, I think it can get done. Well, and I think there's a lot of misinformation, right? Like the whole idea of immigration, it's a massive, it's part of our economic recovery. And I think that story isn't told enough about what immigrants have added to the economy. But, you know, what happened, right, we all saw during the Trump administration, President Trump appointed all of these judges. And just yesterday, we're seeing, you know, judges now have an effect on the Biden administration's ability to make laws, enforce laws, and uh, move forward. What do you think the long-term side effects of the Trump administration's judicial appointments are going to be? That, yeah, that is something that worries me and concerns me. Um, They were surgically efficient uh, with how they filled as many judicial nominations Mm -hmm. as possible. And I read something in, I don't know if it was playbook or was one of the punchbowl, one of the new newsletters that talked about uh, Biden having a focus on filling open seats. And the person who wrote it like editorialized that this isn't anything that like people care about, but I'm like, wait, wait, stop, stop, stop. This is how we got into this mess in the first place. Right. No, people do care about this. If they don't, we need to make them understand that like what Trump did to the judiciary is going to have lasting effects for decades. So to me, it is very heartening that the Biden administration is like aware of like what the vacancies are, is looking for qualified people and is not going to like 
sit on this, but move these judges through because like you said, it has an impact in so many facets of our lives in a way that the right has understood and focused on and put money behind for decades. To your point, they have been so strategic in how they have done this to where it's almost scary. And we're seeing how judges across the country have an impact on specific rulings that affect local communities. And people don't ever see it really in that way. And especially when it comes to racial justice, you know, this week we saw Ambassador Rice as the head of the Domestic Policy Council come out and share some executive orders that the administration is going to take on social justice. And we know, especially given everything that we saw over the summer, how important this is. And we know because President Biden met with George Floyd's family and the impact that it had on him. What can Americans and specifically Americans of color expect from this new administration and their initiatives? You know, I think that they are very intentional about what they are doing. And I, like I said, it is, it is heartwarming and a, such a relief and a stark contrast from the last four years to see a president talk about race, to to use race in a way that that's not divisive, mm-hmm. to acknowledge the problems that exist, and also acknowledge that it's 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 something that's going to take a while to fix, and it's interwoven into every like structure in our society, uh, and so that's why the you know, the, the EOs like talking about structural racism and what they can do from the federal government level to help start dismantling some of these things uh, is so important. Uh, but also, you know, it's something that we, we talk about at CAP all the time. It's like you have to have a, a racial equity lens through everything that you do, mm-hmm. right? So you may be working on policy that like to people who aren't policy wonks, they're like, well, what does that have to do with race? Like, you know, probably a lot, whether it's education policy, the environment to, you know, national security, like, you know, race plays a very important role in informing those policies. So I think it's, it's great. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very curious to see like sort of how they move these things forward, but you have to start somewhere. And so starting with your intention and naming it is great. Right. You know, you can't erase 400 years of systematic oppression overnight or with one administration, but you can take the steps to move the ball forward. And I know that that's the goal, but how do we hold President Biden accountable to that? Well, I think the way you hold any politician accountable, right? Like, obviously, there there are elections, but but more than that, there are this administration, I, I imagine, uh, we'll have more levers than the last one for people to reach out and express their concerns, their disappointments, and and all of that. And unlike the last one, this administration will actually probably do something about it. But I but I think it's important for people to make their their voices heard and through their local elected officials, um, you know, through social media. Uh, like in any way that they can just to make sure that like the promise, because promises are great and promises are important, but we have to make sure that promises are met and promises are actually kept. I was like watching yesterday and I was 
I was so glad that uh, no one from the Biden administration said, you know, promises made, promises kept. But that's what he's doing, right? I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh. <laughs> don't just say it. Actually do it. But, right. you know, uh, one of the things I think, you know, growing up in Galesburg, Illinois, we lost Maytag and there was a lot of division and fear. And President Trump played on that. You know, he really divided people. And I think there's a misnomer in terms of, the economy. But truly, like we know that, and Susan Rice was talking about this, Ambassador Rice yesterday, equality actually has an economic effect on the U.S. Can you kind of tell us a little bit more about how equality will actually benefit economically every American? Right, exactly. There is this um, this notion that is pushed by the right and by Trump especially, that like, you know, there's a pie, right? And so if you're trying to do, uh, you know, give equality to like a group of people, it's like you're taking away somebody's slice of pie. And it's like that, well, the economy is, it's not pie. There's not like a finite amount (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, that if you're helping lifting one person, that means you're automatically denigrating another group of people. And that is like, it's like the politics of, of, of grievance that they had been so good at exploiting. And CAP and plenty of other organizations have done research that shows that when you enact policies that specifically help communities of color, that specifically help black people, that specifically help, you know, Latinx people, it helps the entire economy. You know, I'm not an economist, so I can't get into like the nitty gritty of it, but like when you lift people you know, out of poverty, or you move people into the middle class and they're relying less on certain programs, like that helps everybody. So you have to be able to tell that story of like, yes, we literally are all in this together because we all live in the same country. But like when you help, when you set out policies to help one group of people, it truly does help everybody else. So it is not a zero sum game. It is not, I am helping you at the benefit of, you know, or at the detriment to somebody else. And, and that to me is like, it's a communications and messaging thing that just needs to be said over and over again. I feel like over the past week, we have been inundated with stories about us returning to normalcy now that we're under a Biden administration. And you know, with the power shifting in Washington, now also isn't the time to become complacent. What do you suggest, you know, as a takeaway for our audience that people can do to continue to apply pressure to Congress so that they can take action in our own interests? Yeah, I think that the idea of returning to normal, um, people could see me I'm doing air quotes, like I talk about that in terms of like the pandemic. And I, I honestly don't know what that normal would look like either. But in terms of like our politics and our policies, like, you know, not to quote the campaign, but it's like, now it's time to build back better. It's not about returning to how things were before Trump came into office. Like we should always be striving as a nation to be better than we were in the past, to leave this country better for our kids than we have it. So what the Biden administration should be fighting for and striving for is a country that's better than you know when President Obama left office. And obviously it's going to be better than when Trump left office. But it's like we we did a lot of great things under the Obama administration. There were still a lot of things that were really messed up and screwed up. And so mm-hmm. you have to go and address those things. And, 
you know, no one should feel complacent about returning to something that was great in 2016 because it's 2021 and we want and deserve better for the next generation. So people should like pay attention to what Congress is talking about. They should pay attention to what their their local elected uh, leaders are are saying and doing. And you know, if they feel that like their member of Congress is falling asleep on the job or not doing what, like start lighting up those phones, like start you know get your neighbors together and start doing you know a letter writing campaign or something like people think that these tactics don't work anymore, but members of Congress pay attention to who is calling into their switchboard from their district and what they are saying, because these are the people that elect them. So they, I know it can be daunting, especially with all the money that's in politics these days, but don't underestimate the power of like grassroots organizing um, behind a particular issue or topic. Daniela Gibbs-Legere, Executive Vice President of Communications and Strategy for the Center for American Progress and our friend from the Obama White House. Thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. loved reconnecting with Daniela. It has been too long and she has been at it continually in Washington um, since we all left. So it was really great hearing her perspective. And for more information from Daniela, she also has a podcast. It's a great podcast called The Tent. Check it out. One of the best parts of having this podcast together is that we're able to share with you the voices of of women doing the work on the ground in Washington. And we look forward to having more guests like Daniela on who can help us chart the path forward. Well, there's something I think that's really special about having this new set of experiences and bringing that to this new administration and to be able to trust the leadership. We talked a lot about trust during our interview, but to be able to trust the information coming out of that administration is so important and to know that we have people, especially on the progressive side, that are going to be holding the Biden administration accountable to what their campaign promises were and what they have told the American people will be very refreshing. You know, it's just been so interesting the first couple of weeks, um, the first week, really, it's been so interesting to see um, this administration uh, really represent all parts of America and all walks from America. And on that note, we actually have our first confirmed female Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen. So very excited to give her POTUS of the week. Janet Yellen, uh, we are rooting for a woman in charge of money because we know many of us manage the money at home. That is so true. And our shout out of the week goes to Nia Dennis, the UCLA gymnast who brought us all so much joy and hashtag black girl magic over the weekend when she went viral with her routine, her floor routine. It was so incredible and so inspiring. I wish I could do that, but she is definitely our shout out of the week. Just amazing, amazing job. If you haven't seen it, check it out. She uses music from NWA and Tupac, and you do not want to miss this routine. 
Something else you don't want to miss is our episode next week where we have Alexandra O'Neill from Macarian on. She's a designer who designed First Lady Jill Biden's dress for the inauguration. And we're going to have a conversation that goes beyond fashion. Of course, we want to talk about the dresses and all of that. But we also want to talk about politics, how women are often pieced apart by what they're wearing or not wearing. So we expect that to be a really interesting conversation. We hope you will join us for that and have a great week until then.